أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم 820 years after the martyrdom of Imam Al-Hussein in Karbala a government was established in the heart of Persia in the name of Imam Al-Hussein to honor Imam Al-Hussein and his father and his mother and the nine infallibles from his progeny. This government, which was established in the year 1500, in Ardabil, was later known to be the Safawid dynasty for the very first time in history. After the demise of the Prophet and the martyrdom of Imam al-Hussein, 800 years later, a government was established for the Shia, for the followers of Ahl al-Bayt. For the very first time in history, a government was established which took pride in adhering to the Twelver Ithna Ashari school of thought. This movement which began in Ardabil and moved south to one of the most important capitals of the Islamic land then, the city of Qazween. The settlement, the settlers and the residents of Qazween woke up one day to a new Adhan. This Adhan, for the very first time in history, contained the third Shahada, Ashhadu Anna Aliyan Waliullah. And right after that Adhan, Sallallahu Alaihi Muhammad Ali Muhammad. And it was right after that Adhan that the Safawi dynasty was established. And it governed and reigned for 250 years. The establishment of the Safawi dynasty changed the future of Iran. Iran from then on embraced a new identity. The identity of having a government that embraces and adheres to the Twelver Ithna Ashari school of thought. Not only that, but it changed the fate of Shi'ism until the end of time. For up until then, the Shi'a would not have their own masjids. The Shi'a were not able to practice freely. The Shia constantly lived in a state of taqiyah. The Shia scholars were always seen as the opposition to the tyrants that came 
before the establishment of the Safawi Empire, whether it was the time of Bani Umayyah, or the time of Bani al-Abbas, or the time of the Ottomans, the Shia were always weak and outnumbered and humiliated. But now there's a new establishment that welcomes any Shia from all around the world and adheres to the 12-er Shia school of thought. But it also changed the fate of Islam. Why? Because up until then, the followers of Ahlul Bayt would not be able to propagate and teach and to defend themselves and to speak the truth about what they believed in. And it was until then that they had pulpits, scholars, seminaries, ambassadors. The ambassador of the Safawi Shah would be sent and stationed all over the world, specifically in Europe, different parts of Asia. And the empire, the Safawi empire kept expanding until it reigned over 15 of the contemporary countries that we know today. I want to say this, brothers and sisters, if you're a Shia today, whether you are from Iraq or Iran or Afghanistan or Azerbaijan or Africa or India or Pakistan, or you are a German convert to Shia Islam, or you're a French citizen considering becoming a Shia. What you believe today, your practice today, what you know of Shia Islam today has most definitely been influenced by the 250 years of the governance of the Safawi Empire. There's no doubt. There is absolutely no doubt and the fact that the 250 years of the governance of the Safawi Empire has changed the definition of what we know today as Shia Islam. The books that you read, what you believe in and what you practice has been heavily influenced by this period and that is why it is a period that needs to be examined and studied and analyzed on different levels in detail examining the life and the legacy of the shahs the kings themselves what was their motive and incentive number two Examining the scholars and the ulama and the mujtahids that surrounded them. Examining the role of some of the ulama and mujtahids that took governmental positions in the Safawi dynasty. Examining the books that were authored during this period. Examining the conflict between the Ottoman Empire and the Safawi Empire. And how that conflict was the very first conflict in history between a Shia state and a Sunni state. Prior to that, there was no such thing as Shia state. 
Now, for the very first time, there's a Shia government, a Shi'i army, that has to face the most powerful army of its time. An army that destroyed the most powerful countries and brought them down to their knees in Europe. There was no one that dared to stand an opposition of the Ottoman Empire, but here there is a government called the Safawi dynasty that wants to challenge the Ottomans. For the very first time, this conflict occurred in history. And how is it that it continues until today? And of course, this is a very sensitive topic at the same time. It's an extremely academic topic at the same time. And it could be emotional for some people as well. Because it speaks of change. It speaks of sensitive things. And, you know, sometimes we are not so ready for sensitive topics. But I'll tell you one thing. There has definitely been major change in the originality of Shi'ism and the Shi'ism that we know today. The Shi'a, the originality of Shi'ism, as you know, was introduced by Rasulullah. And later on, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam left and departed this ummah For the love of Rasulullah, recite aloud or He departed this ummah. He left two weighty things amongst us. One was Kitabullah, and second was the Ahlul Bayt. Today, when we observe the followers of Ahlul Bayt, wherever they may be around the world, we find that, mashallah, those who have migrated to the West, the first thing that they did was they established masjids, they established Imam Bargas, Husayniyat, Ziyarat groups, and then they expanded on that. So we have huge events in Ashura and in Arba'in and commemorating the Ahlul Bayt. And the number exceeds the thousands. Thousands of masjids, thousands of Imam Bargas around the world today that are filled with the followers of Ahlul Bayt. However, we all know that Rasulullah left two weighty things amongst us. That defines Shi'ism. That defines those who adhere to the teachings of Rasulullah. And today we cannot deny that we lack a relationship and a bond with the Quran. We lack that quality understanding of the Quran. To us, the Quran is not a priority. And let us be honest to ourselves. Understanding, memorizing, teaching, and being inspired by the Quran is not a priority 
and many of our communities. So if I were to evaluate the original Shias and the Shiism that Allah, Rasulullah and the Ahl al-Bayt wanted for us, it would be a school of thought inseparable from the Qur'an. Followers of the Ahl al-Bayt inseparable from the Qur'an. So if we have a thousand Imam Bargas and a thousand Masjids, we have to have a thousand research institutes for the Qur'an. If we have scholars that know a thousand hadiths, we have to have scholars that know a thousand verses from the Qur'an. If we have a thousand books on Amir al-Mu'mineen wa Mawla al-Muhadeen Ali ibn Abi Talib, we have to have a thousand books discussing Surah Al-Baqarah and Surah Al-Imran. In fact, the central theme of the discussion of our Imams and their companions and the early scholars was the Qur'an. What do you think? If you went to a majlis by Imam Al-Husayn or Imam Zain Al-Abideen or Imam Al-Sadiq or Imam Al-Baqir, what did they speak in their majalis? Have we wondered? It was the Qur'an. They focused on the Qur'an. Amir Al-Mu'mineen in his very last statement to his sons, who were the sons of Rasulullah, who were ma'soom, but he reaffirms his wasiyah to them, and he says, Allah, Allah. Amir al-Mu'mineen, Imam Ali uses the word Allah twice. That's not like me and you using the word Allah. Because Amir al-Mu'mineen knows the significance of the word Allah. In fact, scholars believe it is Ismullah al-A'zam, Allah's greatest of names. So he says, Allah, Allah twice. To get the attention of whom? Hassan and Hussein. Then he says, Allah, Allah bil Quran. Give the utmost importance to the Qur'an and allow the Qur'an to be your Imam. Amir al-Mu'mineen says to Hassan and Hussein, allow the Qur'an to be your Imam. And then he says, and do not allow anyone to proceed in implementing the Qur'an before you. The Qur'an was the Imam of Imam Hussein. The Qur'an was the Imam of Imam Hassan. The Qur'an was the Imam of Amir al-Mu'mineen. And the Qur'an was the Imam of whom? Rasulullah himself. La yantiku anil hawa in huwa illa wahyun. What does that mean? He does not speak of his own. He's not, he does not do anything of his own besides the wahi that comes to him. What is the wahi? The wahi is the Qur'an. So he does that which the Qur'an tells him to do. Yet, where does this, the Qur'an stand in our communities, in our libraries, in our scholarly work? You know, I have alluded to this yesterday, but I would like to, for moments, take your time and expand on this as well, this evening. Today we face a dilemma, brothers. A huge dilemma. A dilemma that 
the majalis of Imam al-Hussein have become a ritual, a practice that divides the community, and I'm not talking about this community, if we look at the Shia community at large around the world, into two participants. The first participants are there for Salat al-Jama'ah and the Qur'an and the lecture and the Azadari until the end of the program. But then there's the other group of participants who are not there for Salah and who are not there for Qur'an and who are not there for the lecture. But as soon as the Nawha Khan begins, Imam al-Hussein did not give his blood so that we gather for 10 nights or 20 nights or 40 nights and we beat our chests. This is doing a disservice to Imam al-Hussein. This is a form of unloyalty to the sacred blood of Imam Abu Abdullah. Imam Abu Abdullah al-Hussein needs followers who are scholars, who are dedicated to the Qur'an, who escape sin, who are moral and ethical in their behaviors. And the aza' for Imam al-Hussein is meant to keep the momentum so that we focus on the bigger picture. But today, unfortunately, you find some people, with all due respect, by the way, to all the azadars and all the reciters and all the scholars and whoever is the servant of Imam al-Hussein. But we have created this culture where around Ashura and around Arba'in, around Safar and the Iraqi community and the Iranian community and the Indo-Pakistani community, you find people who, mashallah, have a special talent for reciting nohas. And they make us brand new Bollywood style clips. And you look at those clips and you wonder, is this a nawha? Is this a clip out of a Bollywood movie? The guy is, you know, hiding behind a tree and then he's inside a river and then the next thing. And this is, this now is the most popular way of expressing our love and our dedication for Imam al-Hussein. There was a, an extremely influential orator, Greek orator, that was the contemporary of Aristotle. But this guy, he was very unfortunate in the way he looked. He was not very good looking. He was not able to speak eloquently. He had a lot of knowledge, but he was not an orator. Obviously, he didn't have the looks. He didn't have social skills. But he had determination. He had determination that he will become a powerful statesman for whatever reason, we don't have time to get into it, to change some of the laws that govern the Greek people. So this guy, he barely was able to speak. 
They say he went out to the desert and he created this, this ditch. And in that ditch, he put nails. So that he would stand in the middle of this ditch and he would speak. And every time he got tired or he lost his chain of thoughts or he had an extra movement, he would feel one of those nails somewhere in his body and then he would get back on track. And they said before his very first public appearance, he did this for seven years. So much so that his body was full of scars from those, na from those nails. And you know, that story makes me, it reminds me of our situation now. Every time we want to introduce something new or talk about a new theory of how we can change our community or where is it that our community is making a mistake, we have to get ready for one of those nails. Because one of those nails will pop out somewhere. But the idea is not being afraid of those nails while we speak. Because this member, if it does not do its job correctly, if it doesn't do justice, so the message of Imam Al-Hussein, it has failed. I'll tell you why. Amir Al-Mu'mineen, his very last advice to Imam Hassan and Hussein is what? Say the truth even if it is extremely bitter. And then he continues and he says, Take side of the mazloom against the zalim. Now, if I sit on this mimbar and repeat the same stories and repeat the same lessons and the same theories for 10 or 20 or 30, 50 years, will that bring about any change? There's nothing wrong with what I'm saying, but there's just nothing new in it. Will that bring about any change? Will that stimulate the minds of those people listening? Will that allow them to go and think and analyze and ponder and come up with new conclusions so that they can feel that Islam is a religion that connects to their day-to-day -day lives? One of the ulama, he's, he wrote a very beautiful book. In the introduction, he says, back in the day when we were young, we used to go to public baths. So he says, you know, in the public bath, you're there. Obviously, they didn't have bathrooms in their home, so they have to go to public baths. So he says, you know, when you're there, there's the, there's the guy that comes in the end and washes you. And people knew this guy. They related to him. They told him, you know, they asked him questions because, he, you know, he was bathing the doctor and then he was bathing the engineer and then he was bathing the teacher and... So he had the information. He was the central bank of information in the city. So he says, I was sitting there relaxing while he was bathing someone else. And this guy was telling him that, you know, I have, I have uh, pain in my knees. Extreme pain in my knees. He says, this is easy. I'll tell you what to do. Honey and lemon. You drink honey and lemon, the pain will go away. So he said, mashallah, thank you. 
He said, another guy came. He said, you know, I, I feel some pain in my heart. I wonder if I should. He says, no, I'll tell you what to do. He says, what? He says, some lemon and honey. You'll be fine. Another guy came. He says to him, you know, life has changed so much. People have changed. I've lost my friends. I no longer can trust people. He says, this is easy. He says, how do you take care of it? He says, lemon and honey. He says, I came to him. I said to him, you know, the strangest thing has happened. Last month, I would spend, for example, 100 dinars on the house. This month, I've spent 200 dinars. And it's still not enough. He says, this is easy. He says, what do I do? He says, lemon and honey. He says to him, what kind of solution is this lemon and honey? He says, I'll tell you what kind of solution it is. I have been drinking lemon and honey for 30 years. I don't have pain in my knees, so it must have worked. I don't have pain in my heart, so it must have worked. And I spend 100 dirhams on my house, and it must have worked. So it works. This is a good solution. Today, many of the members, many of individuals who take this pulpit have the honey and lemon mentality. That this honey and lemon mentality will work for everything. You come and you tell him the youth are no longer interested in attending. One solution. The people are no longer being stimulated and learning. Lemon and honey. It is time, brothers, that we wake up. We think. We come up with new theories. With new plans. We allow Imam al Hussein and the school of Imam al Hussein to stimulate our minds, our souls. Enough stagnation. And part of that, brothers, like I told you, is making sure. We relate back and we take ourselves back and our communities back to the originality of Islam. Because today, whether you are Sunni, whether you are Shia, whether you are Sufi, whatever you may be, educated or not, whether you live in America or the Middle East, the majority of Muslims are looking for the original teachings of Islam, the originality of Islam. We have gone away so far away from the originality of Islam that people no longer can relate to Islam today. Because this Islam today has been tampered with, it has been changed. The Islam that beheads people, the Islam that does not help the refugees. You know, the refugees that were drowning in the sea their children were dying. They were pleading for help. No Muslim country opened its doors and said, come, we welcome you. What kind of Islam is this? But the so-called kuffar, the Germans and the European nations welcomed them in their country. This Islam that we have today how attractive is it for people to even want to consider it?
How attractive is it to your children? How attractive is it to us, ourselves? When we come across people who do not know Allah, and they do not know Amir al-Mu'mineen and Imam al-Hussein and his brother Abu al-Fadl Abbas, but yet they know honesty, brotherhood, equality, humanity, justice, loyalty, bravery, generosity. Yet you find people today with the name of Islam killing innocent people. The cradle of Islam, the birthplace of Islam, today unfortunately is the hub of terrorism to the world. Look at the embarrassment that a journalist has to be cut into pieces. Why? Because he's in opposition. This is coming out from the birthplace of Islam. So we have to come back and find the originality of Islam and that is something very important. And I'll tell you this. Today, I will conclude by giving you an introduction to how the fate of Shias and Shia Islam changed after the birth of the Safawi dynasty and we continue tomorrow. The Shia the followers of Ahl al-Bayt were outnumbered and weak individuals. Specifically, if you look at the rise and the fall of Bani Umayyah, the rise of Bani Umayyah obviously was for political reasons and the fact that Muawiyah had so much wealth that nobody was able to stand before him. And that wealth was distributed within the Umayyad dynasty until the rise of the Umayyads. But why did the Umayyads collapse? The Umayyads collapsed because of their extreme injustice and the fact that they divided the Muslim community in so many different classes. And they prosecuted the most noble of individuals. They killed the sons of all the Khulafa. They did not only kill the son of Amir al-Mu'mineen, but they also killed the son of Abu Bakr. And the sons of other companions. And they prosecuted them. And they disrespected the sanctity of Medina and Mecca. And the reign continued until the rise of Abu Muslim al-Khurasani and in Khurasan and some of the rivals in Kufa who were mainly the followers of Ahl al-Bayt. Now there was a revolution, the Umayyas fell, and Bani al-Abbas came with the slogan of Ar-Ridha min Ali Muhammad. This is very important for you to understand. Bani al-Abbas came with the slogan of seeking the satisfaction of Ahl al-Bayt. But what did they do? As soon as they came, they began to annihilate and kill in the hundreds and in the thousands, the Ahl al-Bayt themselves and their followers. And I'm not here to examine Bani Abbas. 
Again, there was revolutions, one after another, until the rise of the Ottomans, what we spoke about yesterday. Now, here are the Ottomans. The Sultan says, I am the shadow of God on earth. He's not just the Khalifa of Rasulullah. He is the Khalifa of Allah. One of them calls himself the hands of God. So if you stand against the Sultan, the Ottoman Sultan, you ought to be annihilated. You ought to be killed. <clears throat> and who gives him the permission? Shaykh al-Islam. Shaykh al-Islam says to him, you can even kill your own sons. And that's exactly what he did. Sultan Sulaiman killed his own sons who stand, who he thought stood against him. He ordered their own death. A sultan that represents God with thousands of concubines that send the Muslim army to the world so that they can bring him captives, women captives, so that they can become slaves in his palace. At one given point, the sultan who represents Islam has 5,000 concubines. Now there is an opportunity for the followers of Ahl al-Bayt to rise and have their own government to say that this is not Islam. And for the longest of time, we have been prosecuted. We cannot tell you the real Islam. Now they have the ability to do so. Bani al-Abbas, al-Mutawakkil al-Abbasi, he would stand at every entrance to Karbala with his troops, whoever is going for Arba'een, the ziyara of Arba'een, what would they do to them? You know, they would amputate their limbs. Za'ar will come, he says to him, if you go to Karbala, we will cut your hands. He says, cut my hand. Here's my hand. They would amputate his arm and then he goes to the ziyarah of Imam al-Husayn. This was the punishment. Next year he comes, he's, they say that he's, they see that he has severed arms. He says, I'm here to give my second arm, but allow me to go and visit Imam al-Husayn. Today in Karbala, you hear people, لَوْ قَطَّعُوا أَيْدِيَنَا وَالْيَدَيْنِ نَأْتِيكَ زَحْفًا We will crawl to you, Ya Aba Abdullah. This was what they chanted in the time of Bani al-Abbas when they went to the ziyarah of Imam Hussein. They had no majalis. They were not able to congregate next to the shrines of the imams. Now, at the birth of the Safawi dynasty, what happened? Shah himself. Walks from Najaf to Karbala. Walks. The Shah himself leaves his throne in Asfahan and walks to the shrine of the eighth Imam all the way to Khurasan. And he takes his entourage with him. The Shah himself orders the rebuilt of Najaf, Karbala, Al Imam Al Hussein, Abel Fadl Abbas. And the rest of the shrines of the imams. And soon he sends and deploys the gold and the silver to put gold on the mausoleum of Imam al Hussein and his father Amir al Mu'mineen and then the eighth imam. Not only that, but prior, if you go to the ziyarah of Imam al Hussein, you're executed. Now, if you go to Hajj, they call you Hajji. If you go to Mashhad, there's a title for you, Mashhadi. If you go to Karbala, they call you Karbala'i. 
This is history. Now people are proud. Now people have nothing to be afraid of. The ulama, the ulama, the Shia scholars. What was the role? The Shia scholars, if you read the history of Shiaism, were always opponents to the government. Any government, which was, if it was Bani Umayyah, they were opposition. Bani al-Abbas, they were the opposition. The Ottomans, they were the opposition. Every other, and they were the opposition. Now, the ulama have a role in this government. They are respected. The Shah goes and kneels and kisses their hands. A poet comes to Shah Abbas or Shah Ismail. Al-Muhtasham al-Kashani. A very powerful poet. Powerful poet. And he stands just like he would praise any other king. And he begins to praise the king. The king says to him, this is forbidden my state. Any sort of praising and poetry shall be done for Amir al-Mu'mineen. So Muhtasham al-Kashani says, as long as I get paid. But because he had the love of Amir al-Mu'mini. I mean, it's sometimes very difficult to say poems about other individuals and their bravery because there was no such thing or their knowledge because there was no such thing. But when it comes to Amir al-Mu'mini, it becomes easy for anybody to speak of him. And then you see the spring of poetry that began in this era Two things occurred, brothers, and with this I conclude. One, the role of ulama completely changed from opposition to becoming part of the government. This is what I'm going to talk about in detail tomorrow. What happens when the role of opposition changes to a role of agreement with the king? When they became on the payroll of the king. And that is when we will... Also look into the amount of books that were written in that period. And how was, and who oversighted and overlooked the publishing of those books? Who were the scholars that actually opposed the publication of certain books at that period? The books of fabrication, tale, stories. Allahu Akbar. We have traditions that tell you Abu al-Fadl Abbas on the day of Ashura killed 2,000 people. And in Ali al-Akbar, 8,000. And some people actually say this. So you tell them, where did you get it? He says, from this book. Where did this book get authored? At that period. We will talk about this tomorrow, but let's look at this logically. Imagine if they were all standing in line without any resistance. And Abu al-Fadl Abbas took his sword and killed them in one second. How long would it take him to do that? And then Ali al-Akbar would have to take 8,000, so that's 10,000 people. How long does it take to kill 10,000 chickens? We don't need to do this to bring glory to Ahlul Bayt. We don't need to fabricate stories so that we say, Imam al-Hussein or Abu al-Fadl al-Abbas were brave. Abu al-Fadl al-Abbas and Imam al-Hussein were the sons of the man who 
who said, if all the Arabs draw their swords and face me, I will not give them my back. That is bravery. Now, if the number is 100 or 500 or 10,000 or 30,000, it doesn't make a difference. One single man facing an army of 10 to 20,000 people is bravery. But once we find such things in our books, and sometimes they are repeated, then we bring a mockery, unfortunately, to the school of Ahmed and to the followers of Ahmed. And second was the role of the movement of Imam al-Hussein and the sacrifice of Imam al-Hussein to gain momentum and strength for this new government. Yes, the love of Imam al-Hussein and the sacrifice of Imam al-Hussein played a huge role. Because Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam holds this holds this young man, this young boy, and he says, إِنَّ لِلْحُسَيْنِ حَرَارَةً فِي قُلُوبِ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ لَنْ تَظْمَأُ أَبَدًا Or this Hussein, there is a special love in the heart of the mu'mineen, generations to come until the day of judgment, that this love will not decrease. And they will continue to gain strength through Al-Imam Al-Hussein. And amongst the greatest of historical moments, I believe, that needs to be examined in a whole lecture itself, was the visitation of the Shah himself to the shrine of Imam Al-Hussein. And the stories surrounding that, and the stories where he's visited the shrine of Amir al-Mu'mineen. But prior to that, this was a Shi'i Shah, the Sultan Sulaiman, who we've spoken about yesterday and today, he himself went to the shrine of Imam al-Hussein. And when Sultan Sulaiman, Sulaiman the Magnificent, entered the entrance of Karbala, he disembarked from his horse. So his minister told him, Sultan, why did you do that? He says, I felt embarrassed. We are reaching the site of Sayyid al-Shuhada. How can I be on my horse? He says to him, Sultan, he was a Khalifa, and you're a Khalifa. He's dead, you're alive. You're Sultan Sulaiman. The whole world has kneeled to your power. Rise back on the horse. So Sultan Sulaiman stands and he says, give me the Qur'an. I will open the Qur'an and allow the Qur'an to speak to me. To see whether I should get back on my horse or walk to the site of Abu Abdullah al Hussein. He opens the Qur'an and the ayah comes, he not only then disembarked from his horse, but he took off his sandals and he walked barefoot to the shrine of Imam al Hussein. This is Hussein. Hussein, who has 
changed the whole concept of how humans understand sacrifice. In front of him, no one has much to say but to salute him in humility to stand in front of his doors and seeking his lessons and his principles in humility. And unfortunately, we are not amongst the Za'areen of Al-Imam Al-Hussein. Last year, some of us were fortunate enough to be there. And this year, I believe we are fortunate to be in the majlis of Imam Al-Hussein. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.